a young boy prayed for weeks for God to give him $100. But nothing happened. He prayed every day, and it went on for weeks, and so he decided to write God a letter uh, telling him he really needed the money. Well, he wasn't sure where to send the letter, so he simply used this address, God, comma, USA. (laughs) When the post office got his letter, they didn't know what to do with it, so they sent it to the president. Well, the president was amused when he read it, so he decided to send the boy a $5 bill, thinking that that would be a lot of money to the young boy. The boy was delighted to receive the money, and so he sat down and he, well, he wrote a thank you note to God. Here's what it said. Dear God, thank you very much for sending the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you sent it through Washington, D.C., And as usual, those turkeys deducted $95 in taxes. (laughs) This boy was not afraid to pray a big prayer. Well, instead of reading our passage together today, I'm going to pray our passage, and I'm going to pray our passage for us using the words found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And you're welcome to bow your head and close your eyes, or the text will be up on the screen and you can pray as I go through it, or feel free to use your own copy of the scriptures. God, for this reason, we bow. We bow before you in our hearts, before you as Father, And we thank you that it's from you that every family, those families who know you and have put faith in you who are in heaven and on earth, and that according to the riches of your glory, oh, would you grant to us to be strengthened with power. And would you do that through your spirit and do it in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so that we being rooted and grounded in love. Oh, that we would have strength to comprehend with with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Oh, that you would fill us with all the fullness of yourself. And now to you, to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Here's our main idea. God gives us more strength than we can even ask for when we are fully surrendered to Christ. 
Let me suggest some observations that will help us understand this really big prayer. First of all, this prayer is Trinitarian. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned. Notice verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 16, strengthened with power through his Spirit. And in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The most common way to pray in the Bible is to address prayers to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. However, it's certainly appropriate to address Jesus and the Holy Spirit when we pray. Second observation, this prayer is focused on the inner person, not on our bodies or on uh, on external things. Now, I was thinking about that. So many of our prayers, my prayers, have to do with health and physical needs. And well, here, Paul is more concerned with how we're doing on the inside, with our souls. In fact, all of Paul's prayers recorded when he was in prison dealt with the believer's spiritual condition, not their physical. Now, let me be quick to say, there's nothing wrong with praying for physical health. Not at all. We're supposed to do that. But Paul's primary concern is internal, not external. Now, related to this, one pastor suggests most of our prayers, most of my prayers, fall into two categories. Category number one, pain avoidance. And that prayer goes like this, Lord, this hurts too much, make it stop. Second category, change of circumstances. Lord, I don't like this right here. I don't like this situation. Would you change it, please? Now, interestingly, we don't see Paul praying these kinds of prayers. Let me remind you where Paul is when he writes this letter, when he pens this prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20 says that Paul is in chains in prison. Next, Paul prayed with passion. He didn't pray just with his mind. He just didn't go through some rote kind of memorized prayer. No, he threw his heart into his prayers. Paul prayed with fervency and with a sense of urgency, much like Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9. And final observation, this prayer is focused on the need for power. The word power or strengthen is used four different times. And so if the prayer in chapter 1 was for enlightenment, that we might know God's power, this prayer is for empowerment, that we would use the power of God available to us. So in this passage, we're going to see the posture of prayer, and then we're going to look at five petitions of prayer, and then we'll conclude with the power of prayer. Notice first the posture of prayer. The first thing we notice is Paul's posture. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. To bow means to bend in homage, to stoop in reverence and submission. Now, there are various postures of prayer seen in Scripture. Here are just a few. Abraham stood when he prayed, Genesis chapter 18. 
David sat when he prayed, 1 Chronicles 17, 16, while Jesus fell on his face and prayed, Matthew 26, 39. In fact, the normal way for a Jewish person to pray was to stand up and pray. Ah, but when the situation was dire, the individual was broken, and the one praying wanted to demonstrate humility in the face of an extraordinary event, well, they would, they would hit their knees. They'd go down on their knees before God in an act of submission, in an act of recognizing God's authority. So to kneel represents humility. It represents adoration before God. We see this in Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our Maker. Many individuals in the Bible knelt when they prayed. I think of Solomon, Ezra, Daniel, Jesus, Stephen, right before he was martyred, Peter and Paul hit their knees when they prayed. Now, this doesn't mean we must always kneel when we pray, not at all. But we should be, watch this, kneeling in our hearts. There should be a position of submission, of of reverence in our hearts. Because certainly we can pray when we walk. I've done that before in our neighborhood, just praying for our neighbors. Uh, You can pray when you're driving. Some of you need to pray when you're driving. You can pray when you're exercising or sitting or reclining as long as we're revering God in our hearts. And Paul refers to God as Father 42 different times in his letter. That's quite moving because in the Old Testament, God is not depicted as Father, or I haven't been able to find that at least when an individual addresses God. And there's no other description used as frequently in the New Testament as our Father. That's how Jesus told his disciples to pray. In verse 15, Paul acknowledged from whom every family, it's curious, he uses the word family here, Every family in heaven and on earth is named. God names every family which shows his heart for the home and the family unit as the primary discipleship engine. And so the church's role is to come alongside parents and partner with parents as they focus on making young disciples. Deuteronomy 6. Notice that some of God's forever family is already in heaven while others are still on earth. And to be named in biblical usage refers to our identity and it reflects the authority of the one who does the naming. So a week ago, because of this verse, I've been reading Ephesians every morning, sometimes large chunks, sometimes small chunks, sometimes just one verse, sometimes many verses. But when I came to this verse, I decided during my times of prayer to kneel while I was praying. And I've been doing that every day this week. Now, let me be quick to say, I'm not saying that to like, whoa, look at me, I'm kneeling. Not at all. I haven't been kneeling up until this week. 
And I thought, well, that's what the verse says. I'm able to kneel. I can still get up after I kneel. And so it's interesting what's happened. It's uncomfortable to kneel, which helps me focus of why I'm on my knees. It's like fasting, right? The discipline we don't talk much about. And the purpose of fasting is to focus, focus on God. So that's been very helpful. It's helped me just focus and stay on my knees and praying. It also, I found, keeps me in a humble, submissive posture before God. You might want to try it yourself if your health allows. For some of us, that's not an option. So God gives us more strength than we can even ask for when we fully surrender to Christ. Now, let's look at the heart of this prayer, the petitions of prayer. And I see five of them here. These same requests are good for us to pray as well. Warren Wiersbe suggests these requests are not isolated, but rather they're like parts to a telescope. And Paul prays that our inner being would have spiritual strength, and my guess is you need strength on the inside. And that comes from surrender, which provides stability and a settled faith, and this deeper experience then will allow us to be saturated with the fullness of God. Paul makes these requests not according to our ability to receive them, but according to God's ability to give them. In other words, Paul does not want us to experience a puny portion of God but to draw from God's limitless supply in a really big prayer. Oh, notice that according to the riches of his glory, the riches of his glory, the wealth of his glory. As we've defined before, glory literally means heavy in weight, important, significant, having a great reputation and splendor, brightness and beauty, worthiness and honor. God's glory is the sum total of the weightiness of all of his attributes. And so we're praying according to the riches of his glory. His glory. It has to do with the fame of his name. It represents his presence and his power. Let's look at these petitions and let's determine to make these part of our own prayers. First petition is for strength. Verse 16, for God to give power and strength and to give it the very core of our being and to do it through the Holy Spirit. May he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. To grant means to give freely. Not reluctantly, to give freely. The word strengthened has the idea of growing strong and established. That word power is where we get the word dynamite, dynamic, dynamo from. And notice the Holy Spirit does this strengthening in our souls or our inner being. Makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly, We are wasting away. Do you ever feel like that? On the outside, you're just wasting away. Things are slowing down. Some of us are struggling physically with health things or our loved ones are. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Yet, inwardly, we're being renewed day by day 
Psalm 180, 138, verse 3, on the day I called you, you answered me, my strength of, listen for it, strength of soul, you increased. God, strengthened me on the inside, strengthen my soul. Well, let's look at the second petition. We could call that surrender. In order to have the Holy Spirit strengthen us in our inner being, we must first be surrendered to him. We see that in the first part of verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's prayer is that Christ would dwell in our hearts. That's a compound form of two Greek words. It means to settle down and feel at home. Christ, would you feel at home in my heart? That's in contrast to being like a visitor or a guest. It's the idea of being comfortable in a home. So the prayer is for Christ to dwell deep at home in our hearts. Do you know it's possible for Jesus to be in your heart but not at home there? Jesus wants to be more than just a guest in our lives. Why? Well, because he's Savior, he's Lord, he's owner. He wants our hearts to become his home. And so the question is not, how much of the Lord do I have, but rather, how much of me does the Lord have? Well, let me just bring it to our world. At least a week ago, many of you watched the Super Bowl, and if you did, you saw a commercial called He Gets Us. The idea is not so much that he gets us, but that he saves us in order to rule and reign supreme in our lives. Let me say it like this. We're the ones who need to get him by surrendering to his supremacy. And Paul summarized his surrender, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Colossians 1:27 he writes Christ in you the hope of glory. Notice the third petition stability. So pray for strength, make sure we've surrendered. The third one we could call stability. It's found in the last half of verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love Paul's mixing metaphors here in order to communicate the importance of going deep with God. And just as a tree must grow deep roots, deep into the soil to find nourishment and stability, so believers must go deep. Uh, Think with me of the parable of the four soils, or we could call them the four souls, (laughs) Jesus warned in Matthew 13, 6, and since they had no root, they withered away. The word rooted is from the world of botany, while grounded refers to a building, the foundation of a building. Warren Wiersbe tells the story. His church was going through a building program, and they spent weeks taking soil samples and then pouring footings. And Wiersbe, as the pastor, was getting frustrated with how much time all of that was taking. 
And so one day he went up to a contractor and he expressed his frustration. He said, things are going so slowly. To which the contractor replied, quote, Pastor, the most important part of the building is the foundation. If you don't go deep, you can't go high. And Wearsby said that was like a sermon to him that he's never forgotten. Well, let's replay that in our own minds. If you're not going to go deep, you will not go high with Christ. The most critical part of a building's stability has to do with the firmness of its foundation. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 and 25, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, would you note, bad things happen and the rain fell, floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. This prayer is for believers to be rooted and grounded in love. According to John 13, 35, love is the defining characteristic of a disciple of Christ. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Earlier this week, I was out in the community in a public space, and I saw two Edgewood members uh, studying the Bible together. And they're part of our intentional discipleship ministry where a believer who's been walking with Jesus for a while is helping a newer believer gain her foundation in Christ. They meet on a regular basis. I've seen them studying the Bible together before. On this particular day, as they were studying, I was maybe 15 feet away, and I just observed, and I noticed they both bowed their heads and prayed. And then I looked over again, and they were still praying. Looked over again, and they were still praying. I'm guessing they prayed for about 10 minutes. Now, those are two women who are being intentional about going deep with Christ. So if you're new in your faith, you're just trying to figure out what you believe and what the difference is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and and you're like, how do I read the Bible? Where do I read? How do I do this? We have a ministry here called Intentional Discipleship, and it's designed to have those who are newer in their faith connect with those who are further along in their faith so that both can grow in discipleship and perhaps you've been walking with Jesus for a while you would be a wonderful person to connect with that individual you could make a note on your connection card today and Pastor Kyle will follow up with you here's the booklet that we use it's called growing in Christ as it goes through a number of verses uh, that's available out at our resource center notice the next request settled In verse 18, in the first part of verse 19, we discover the fourth petition, and that's to have a spiritual settledness about the limitlessness of God's love. Well, let me just pause here to say some of you don't believe you're loved by God. You're like, yeah, yeah, he loves other people, but not me. Some of you are filled with guilt and shame, and you know what you've done, and you just think you're DQ'd, that there's no way. 
Well, listen to verse 18, first part of verse 19, may have strength to comprehend of all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That word comprehend is also translated as grasp. It literally means to be made strong, to apprehend, to understand the enormity of the love of Christ. Oh, and observe, he wants all the saints to take hold of this divine love. This is not referring to super spiritual people who have died. No, a saint in the Bible is a born-again believer, and the word saint reminds us we're to be set apart for him, for his purposes. Oh, this also shows the importance of gathering regularly for worship and being connected with other Christians. Oh, do you see it? We comprehend better when we're in community with all the saints. We're not designed to be disconnected from other disciples. John Stott says the isolated Christian can indeed know something of the love of Jesus, but his grasp of it is bound to be limited by his limited experience. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. Another commentator adds, the subject is so great that no one believer can possibly grasp more than a small fraction of it. Said another way, we're on the same team and we support each other as teammates, as members of the body of Christ. Now this past week, some of you maybe were at the game or watched the game on TV or saw some clips Caitlin Clark, who plays for Iowa, has now broken a record, a women's scoring record, and it was just incredible. And I watched a number of interviews, and the interviews after the game kind of went a certain direction, but I was really interested in the interview that took place at halftime. So she had just broken the record by a lot, (laughs) like in the first minutes. And a a reporter put a mic up to her, and she's, like, breathing hard. She's all sweaty, like it's halftime, right? She probably wanted to get in the locker room. Here's what the reporter said. What does this record mean to you? You ever find it funny, the questions that reporters ask athletes, like, how does it feel to win? How does it feel to lose, right? But what does this record mean to you? Her answer was incredible. It's cool to be in the realm of really, really good players. So she gave credit to those who came before her. I have really good teammates and really good coaches. And then she said, but we need to play better defense. (laughs) And then she went off into the locker room. That's a sense of team. So sure, she's a scoring champ, but she knows she's part of a team. We're all in this together. Now, in an effort to convey the limitlessness of God's love, Paul attempts to measure that which is immeasurable. He describes its four-dimensional vastness. So consider with me, and let's worship while we do, the breadth of God's love. God's love is so wide, it reaches to all peoples, 
all people groups, all nations, all your needs, all your cares, all situations. I was reminded of this whenever I baptize someone and I notice that the individual is nervous. Uh, I'll encourage them to think about all the people who've been baptized from the time of Jesus up until this very moment. Like, what number would you even use? Like, how do you count that? And then as we're trying to count and reflect, I say, you're the next one in line. Then, think of all the people who are being baptized at this exact moment all over the world, in China and in Mexico and in Iraq, all over the globe, and now you're going to get baptized right now as you stand up and proclaim your identification with Christ. It helps us, friends, to think of the breadth of believers and how God's love is so, so wide. Let's consider the length of God's love. God's unconditional love existed before time and extends into eternity. God's love is long enough to last forever. Jeremiah 31.3, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What about the height? This word height is used of the highest heaven. It means elevated. The love of God is high enough to take those who are saved to heaven. And the word depth, God's love is deep enough to reach and rescue the worst sinner. Someone said it like this. He can save from the uttermost to the guttermost. (laughs) This list of dimensions of God's love Reminds me of the description found in Job 11, 8, and 9. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. We're also drawn to worship as we hear Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Friends, God loves you more than you will ever know. Do you believe that? Some of you do, and it shows because you're living with freedom and joy because you know you don't deserve it. But some of us have a hard time. It was Pastor Brown who said that statement. Let me say it again. He loves you more than you will ever know. And so when we look at the cross, we see God's love displayed on the horizontal beam through its breadth and its length. The vertical beam displays the height and depth of God's love. And so maybe you ask, how much does he love me? Look at the cross and you'll know. Someone captured it like this. I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he said, this much. And he stretched out his arms and died. That's how much he loves you. Doesn't matter if you're unlovable. So am I. We're all unlovable. But this is how much he loves you. 
Paul prayed for believers to know the love of Christ, not just intellectually, some of us just live up here in our, in our heads, but he also wants us to know it experientially. Oh, look at the phrase, his love surpasses knowledge. <laughs> so even if we could figure it out, it's above, it's exceeding that. Most of us understand intellectually that God loves us, but we're also called to experience this love. The New Living Translation renders it like this, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. The beginning part of verse 19 seems like a contradiction. (laughs) It reads like this, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. (laughs) How can we know the love of God, the love of Christ that's beyond knowing. Like, how do we comprehend the incomprehensible? How do we know the unknowable? Well, humanly speaking, we can't. And Paul is not praying for us to know the love we have for Jesus, but for us to know the love of Jesus. And when we contemplate his love, it should overwhelm us and blow us away. Look at the last petition. We could call it saturated. His petition here is for believers to be saturated with the fullness of God. Look at the last part of verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, comma, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, how how do you contain the uncontainable? That's an amazing thought. As believers, we've been created to be containers of God. He desires to pour his life into ours and fill us until we're full. One commentator captures this beautifully. To be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. But to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the senses and confounds the understanding. The word filled means to be filled to the fullest, to be filled to overflowing like a cup that is running over. It means if you're filled with God, you're dominated by God, that he's in charge, that you come to the place in your life where you are totally overwhelmed by God's presence. It means giving everything to God and leaving nothing of yourself. It suggests a progressive experience where we ask God to constantly fill and flood us with his fullness. Friends, do you experience the saturation of God on a regular basis? That's what Paul prays for believers. If you don't live with that kind of fullness, well, let's pray this prayer then for ourselves and for others so that we can say to the Lord, Lord, fill me up so that my life is all you and none of me. I think of an empty cup. How do you get all the air out of an empty cup? Well, there's only one way, by filling it with something else. How do we remove the weakness, the sin, the junk from our lives? By being filled with the fullness of God. I love Psalm 81.10. It urges us to pray big prayers to a big God. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it, God says. God gives us more strength than we can even ask for when we fully surrender to Christ. I'll look now at the power of prayer in the last two verses. 
After contemplating the thrill of experiencing God's strength, when we surrender, we can be stable, we can be settled and saturated with all the fullness of God. And next, Paul just bursts forth into this glorious doxology of praise in verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Theology must always become doxology. And the word doxology comes from doxa, that means glory, and L-O-G-Y means word. And so a doxology is a word of worship centered on the glory of God. We see that in the phrase, to him, observed, it's twice. Now to him, to him be glory. And so what do we see? We see God's greatness, God is able, which means he has the power to do anything he purposes to do. That thing in your life right now, that situation where you're like, this can never change. That area you're discouraged about, God's able. Secondly, we see his grace. And here Paul piles synonym upon synonym to show how gracious he is to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That phrase far more means to surpass, to go over, above, beyond. Abundantly means exceedingly overflow and all of that so that we give him glory. Glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul has such a high view of the church, of the centrality of the church as the means by which much glory can be given to God. In other words, as we utilize the power given to us in the church, God receives the glory in the church. And the extent of his ability is seen in the manner in which Paul like pyramids words. Well, let me show it this way. God is able He's able to do, he's able to do what we ask. He's able to do what we think. He's able to do what we ask or think. He's able to do all that we ask or think. (laughs) He's able to do above all that we ask or think. He's able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And he's able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think. As you may know, one of Edgewood's Go Team partners is Keep Believing Ministries, and Pastor Ed and I have the privilege of serving on the board with Ray Pritchard. Well, we had a meeting two weeks ago, and we were brainstorming. We uh, Keep Believing Ministry gives away Anchor for the Soul in both English and Spanish. Over one million copies in English have gone out for free around the country in jails and prisons, pregnancy centers, all over the world. And we also have thousands of copies of the Spanish Anchor. And so we were brainstorming, how do we get the Spanish Anchor book into the hands of Latino pastors and ministry leaders? And Pastor Ed led that brainstorming session. And we just 
threw out a bunch of ideas, and one of those ideas was, well, wouldn't it be great to partner with Moody in Chicago when they have conferences, and we put one of these books in every ministry leader's hands and then tell them how they could order a box of these books all for free and use them for outreach ministry. So we're just kind of coming up with ideas. We prayed. Meeting was over. There were no action steps put in place just days after our meeting. I received an email from somebody that I graduated from Moody with. Uh, she works in Moody Publishers. She's the editor for Today in the Word. She reached out and she said, Brian, I know you're part of Keep Believing Ministries. Is there any way you could provide copies of the Spanish Anchor for the Soul books to pastors at an upcoming conference? And I said, absolutely. So get this, this week... Gary and Kathy Pinger, members here at Edgewood, oversee all the shipments of Anchor for the Soul out of a storage facility in Moline. Gary and Kathy will drive to Moody on Tuesday and deliver more than 1,500 copies of this book. Friends, God did way more than we could even ask or imagine, and all for his glory. What big thing are you hoping God does for you? Well, let's think of some action steps. Number one, if you don't have physical limitations, try praying on your knees for one week. Number two, pray this prayer for yourself on a regular basis. The only text you need for the prayer is your Bible. Just pray it. Pray it out loud. Number three, pray this prayer for other people. I did that this week. I prayed for Pastor Dan and Pastor Beth. I just inserted their names in this prayer. Number four, think of an impossible situation right now and choose to trust our really big God. Is there something you're facing that seems way beyond hope? It's time to pray a really big Nearly 40 years ago, I read a brief booklet, which I find myself still thinking about from time to time. The, the booklet impacted me so much. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's written by Robert Munger. And so I took that booklet and um, just wrote out an edited version for the sake of time. And I want to share this with you now. Here's how it begins. In the joy of his newfound relationship with Christ, Munger, the author, prayed this prayer. Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you. Let me show you around and introduce you to the various features of my home so that you may be more comfortable and you and I may have fuller fellowship together. Well, first I led Christ into the study or the library. Well, that represents the things my mind focuses on. Oh, the Lord had a bit of cleanup work to do there, getting rid of books and magazines as well as some shameful pictures on the wall of my mind. We moved to the dining room, which represented my fleshly appetites and desires. From there, we moved to the living room. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a bookcase, and a quiet atmosphere. 
We agreed to meet there each morning to start our day together. At first, we spent some wonderful hours there. But then as pressures mounted, the time began to be shortened, and eventually I got so busy that I started skipping these times. Well, one morning as I was rushing to leave the house, I saw that the door to this room was ajar. There was a fire in the fireplace, and the Lord was sitting in there alone. I turned to him and I said, Master, have you been here all these mornings? Yes, said the Lord. I told you that I would be here every morning to meet with you. And the Lord went on to explain that I viewed the quiet time only as a means for my own spiritual progress rather than as a time to meet and fellowship with the living Lord who looked forward to meeting with me. Then Jesus asked if I had a rec room, a place where I went to for fun. I was hoping he wouldn't ask about that room. But finally, I realized I would have no joy unless the Lord remodeled that room of the house also. One evening, I was on my way out to have a good time with my buddies. Jesus asked if he could join us. I answered rather awkwardly telling him he wouldn't be comfortable going where we were headed. I offered instead for Jesus to join us at Bible study later in the week. Jesus answered, I thought when I came into your life, we were going to do everything together to be close companions. I ended up leaving Jesus home, but I felt miserable about it. We moved on to the workshop where he could work uh, through me to produce good works, and I was finally relieved that the Lord had finished his remodeling project, and, well, I was comfortable that he was comfortable living in my home. However, one day I came home to find the Lord waiting at the door. He said, there's an awful odor in the house. There's something dead in here. It's in the hall closet. Oh, I knew about that closet, but I wanted to keep that off limits to the Lord. I mean, I certainly didn't want Christ to see what was in there. In fact, I was angry that he even brought it up. After all, I had given up so many things for him. The Lord simply and softly replied, well, I really can't stay in here with that foul odor. I'll just make my bed out on the porch until this is cleaned up. Well, I was fearful of losing fellowship, so I whispered, okay, I'll give you the key, but you'll have to clean it out. I can't. And he said, I'll clean it out. Shortly after this, I asked him a question. Lord, is there any chance that you would take over responsibility for the whole house and operate it for me and with me just as you did that closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart where it ought to be and my life where it ought to be? I could see his face light up as he replied, certainly, that is what I came to do. You cannot be a victorious Christian in your own strength. Let me do it through you and for you. But then he added slowly, but I'm not the owner 
of this house. I've just been a guest. You've given me no authority to proceed since the property's not mine. I saw it in a minute and I dropped to my knees and I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I've been the host, but from now on, I'm going to be the servant. You are going to be the owner and master and Lord. And running as fast as I could to the safe, I took out the title deed to the house. And I eagerly signed it over to him alone for time and eternity. Here, I said, here it is. All that I am, all that I have forever. Now you run the house. I'll remain with you as your servant. Friends, that's how God works in our hearts. He wants to move from room to room until every area of our lives is suitable for his dwelling place. But the bigger question is this. Have you signed over the deed to your life to him? I'm going to ask you to stand now and for our closing benediction, Receive this doxology from the end of Ephesians 3. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think according to his power that is at work within you. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.